This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today are Professor Millicent Brown of Claflin University and Professor John Hale from the College of Charleston. We're going to be talking about the 60th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus the Board of Education. But in the case of Professor Brown, who has nothing to do with the title of the case, but as a young person growing up in Charleston in a family that was active in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, you and your family personally played a role in the desegregation of schools in South Carolina. So, Melissa, I'd like to toss it to you and just talk a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into the Brown case. But let's talk about your background, because just because there was a decision in 1954 didn't mean that your father could enroll you in the Charleston Public Schools. Absolutely. And for to be correct, we have to understand that after the infamous 1954 Supreme Court decision, South Carolina, like many southern states, really paid it no attention. My parents, who were very active uh, locally, who were South Carolinians, jumped to be among the first to try to get the Charleston schools to comply with the federal court decision. And so in 1955, uh, my parents were among a group of parents that tried to transfer students into the all-white schools at the time. So the original plaintiff in the case was my sister, my older sister, Hmm. Minerva Brown. When did the Charleston schools desegregate? Not until 1963. So it's nine years later that the actual compliance occurs. And when that compliance occurs, you are one of the students to attend a previously all-white school. What had happened was my older sister, the original plaintiff, had graduated from high school. (laughs) And the case was about to be um, considered moot. Mm-hmm. And that was a strategy that a number of states were using to resist uh, the, the Brown decision. If a particular plaintiff um, was no longer eligible to transfer, then the case would be thrown out and another plaintiff had to start from scratch. In the case of our family, my father always called me his ace up his sleeve because he had another daughter. So the case went with my name as chief plaintiff in 1960. So it would take three years as Millicent Brown at all before we actually got into the schools. Okay. And how old were you then, Millicent? In 1963, I was 15. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you transferred into... Into the uh, 10th grade. Into the 10th grade. Which school? Charleston High School? Rivers High School. Rivers High School. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Named for Congressman Mendel Rivers, which it, there's a certain irony there. And Rutledge Rivers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. John Hale, let's talk about the Brown decision. And I think we need to go back to South Carolina. South Carolina played a major role in this with the case of Briggs v. Elliott. Uh, well, Briggs v. Elliott uh, is an instrumental decision in the Brown case. It's one of the five court cases that make up the Brown decision. And if you look at how Brown became known as Brown v. Board of Education, you'll see that Briggs should have become first because alphabetically it falls before Brown. Supreme Court justices were looking for an example outside of the South to demonstrate that segregation was a national issue rather than just a Southern problem, So they, which is why it's known as Brown. But Briggs originates in Clarendon County uh, in the early 1950s. Reverend Joseph Delane is a religious and social leader in Clarendon County. He's supporting parents who are very unhappy with the public school system in Clarendon County. Specifically, they're asking, asking, petitioning the Clarendon County School Board for one school bus. That's where it all started, is because these young children literally had to walk five or six miles. In one case, they had to ford a creek, uh, although I, I read one account is that in the springtime rains, they actually had to take a rowboat across the creek. And one child was drowned going to school. And 
the state NAACP, Mr. Hinton, Reverend Mr. Hinton. Reverend James Hinton, yes, um, from Columbia. He used to talk about separate but never equal. That was his phrase that he used as president. And he provided support. They actually recruited the Reverend Mr. Delane and and those folks in Clarendon County because it's my understanding the national NAACP wasn't going to do it for one person. They needed to have a group, and there were about 20 families who joined this. uh, The final case had about 22 um, Mm -hmm. plaintiffs signed on, and it was NAACP strategy to you had to have a local demand to bring down NWCP or Thurgood Marshall and others to present at the case. The case wound through the courts and ended up in Charleston in federal district court. And then we see the coming into real public notice um, the activities of Judge Jay Wadey's wearing mm-hmm. because he was the presiding judge in that case. Mm-hmm. But, Millicent, let's talk, because I know your folks were there and present yes. in, the, in the courthouse. As this case is being argued, the first, one of the first things that really kind of was a bombshell is the state's attorney got up and admitted that things were not equal. Absolutely. But they were going to take care of it, right? Right. right. Okay. And I'll let, let you go on now. Well, as a personal recollection, I have um, queried my parents, both of whom are deceased now, but I was really delighted to to hear of their recollections of that momentous day. My mother talked about what it was like to sit in the courtroom and to watch Thurgood Marshall with his um just his acumen and, and legal, you know, rapport and how that was such a boost to to the spirits of the petitioners and to the whole community that this erudite lawyer would just stand tall in this Charleston courthouse and and represent these obviously very controversial issues. And so I can remember as a child, um, Thurgood Marshall always stayed with us when he um, was in the area, of course, because um, hotels at the time were segregated. And so he was a personal friend of the family. And we just got a chance to see that human side and and to be so motivated by it. Well, when your parents went to the courtroom, it, it was a federal courthouse, yeah. but was it segregated? Did they have to? Do you remember that? The, according to Judge Waring's recollections, had he already um, hired a black bailiff at the time? I don't know at the time if he had the if he hired some an African American work in the courthouse, but I know that African Americans showed up in overwhelming support of the case. So they were seated in, in the entire courthouse. In the courthouse, because I think the, most of the audience was black. That's the yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. So there was no need for segregated seating because literally a throng of people, um, many of whom were from Clarendon County, mm-hmm. um, came to actually hear the proceedings and to support Harry Briggs and the Pearson family, and um, as well as, as Judge... Um, as um, Reverend Delane. And one of the things that's often forgotten is that Harry Briggs was a World War II veteran. Yes. He had served his country. Yes. I've always thought that that was not necessarily a key component of the mix, but he was one of those young men who came back from World War II and were not going to accept things the way they had always been. Absolutely. And he's in the same cohort of Isaac Woodard, of course, who was influential in creating a, a national narrative about the abuses of the South and returning veterans not, you know, standing up for their rights and for themselves and and really starting to generate national support for the African-American Southern movement. So the case is being argued there in in Charleston. And it is specifically about providing a bus. This is not a case about schools desegregation. It is at the time when as much as people wanted to eliminate segregation, the strategy at that time was still to argue for equalization. Well, didn't Judge Waring kind of hint to Thurgood Marshall that he really ought to carry the make it bigger, John? Yeah, well, the, the story goes that Judge Waring pulled uh, Thurgood Marshall aside in his chambers, some claim, and really encourages Thurgood Marshall to not attack the Plessy 
um, statement of, of separate but equal, really to attack segregation. And it, it said that it's in Charleston where Thurgood begins to shape this new strategy from moving from separate but equal to just challenging segregation. Because by that point in 1952, Judge Waring is looking at the McLaurin v. Oklahoma and Sweat v. Painter decision, and he's interpreting this as the the legal um, justification for attacking segregation itself. Take for a moment and explain that particular case because I think our listeners might not be familiar with it. Sure. These are two court cases. These are dealing with higher education, specifically law school and and graduate programs. So McLaurin v. Oklahoma was a case that was decided in 1950 in which the state of Oklahoma is ordered to allow Charles McLaurin into a PhD program at the University of Oklahoma in, in the School of Education. And here he, he is admitted into the school uh, progressively by officials. And what you see are images of McLaurin sitting outside the classroom. So he was allowed in the school, but he was never allowed in the classrooms. He was segregated within the libraries, within the cafeteria, parking lot, etc. So we, we see this first case where um, an African-American applicant is allowed into school. McLaurin himself is also an, an older veteran, too. So we see this pattern. Sweat v. Painter also decided in 1950 occurs in Texas, and the state of Texas is ordered to either allow the plaintiff to the University of Texas Law School or to construct a separate and equal law school. Texas decides uh, the latter, and they build a separate law school, which is now Thurgood Marshall Law School in Houston. And, of course, South Carolina followed that pattern, too, and built a separate law school at and that was ever State. since, yeah, and that had happened ever since '46. Yeah. So this is prior to the um, the Briggs case, yeah. and I really do think uh, several people have um, said that they they take some exception to the um, accolades given to Judge Waring. I think people recognize historians, especially, recognize the the pivotal role that he played as a jurist at this time. But we have to also remember that in 1946, it is Judge Waring who rules against John Wrighton, who tries to go to the University of South Carolina Law School. And it is Waring that will then say, no, we will create a separate law school at South Carolina State College at the time. Judge Waring obviously has a change in his perspectives and his rulings will obviously change. But I think for the record, we have to remember that, or at least we can surmise that had he ruled differently in 1946, would this process of desegregation gone a little quicker? Would it have been a little easier, a little earlier? We don't know, of course. But and you also have to but you have to remember his rulings in the Democratic primary and the equalization of teacher pay. Mm-hmm. So he was making some other decisions that were path breaking. Now, what is interesting about creating the law school at SC State? Of course, creating a law school is a very expensive proposition. Right. And at one point, Dean Prince of the USC Law School was before Senate committee. And they wanted to know why so much money was being spent per pupil at SC State versus what was being spent at the University of South Carolina. And Dean Prince responded, you know, Senator, the price of prejudice is very high. You know, you've got to start over beginning with the law library. You've got, you've got to buy all this stuff, you know. So South Carolina was spending a lot of money on that. And also, if you want to go to graduate school, I remember the late Matthew Perry's wife, the state gave her a full ride to go to graduate school out of state. As also happened with almost all of my friends that I grew up with whose parents were professionals, teachers, whatever. Um, One of my earliest childhood memories growing up in Charleston was this whole idea of my friends' parents all were gone in the summer, and my my parents were not educators, and so I never understood why nobody's mother or father was around in the summer, why they everybody lived with their grandparents, and it was because these people who were in the school system were going to Michigan, were going to New York, to Pennsylvania, whatever, and it's because they had to go outside the state of South Carolina to, to get uh, graduate education. And if you look at some um, of educators who are going north to 
get a master's degree, sometimes a PhD, and returning to teach in the South. Uh, for instance, Mrs. Lois Sims, who was an English teacher at Burke High School, studies up north, and her master's thesis is on the disparity in educational funding in South Carolina. So a lot of African Americans are moving north and receiving a very liberal education and learning the critical tools necessary to combat segregation. And then they're coming back south, and oddly enough, it's South Carolina's paying for this education. And we digressed a little bit, but let's let's get back to the. To, <laughs> but that's that's okay. It was an important digression. Uh, let's get back to the actual case going on in in Charleston with Briggs. Three, mm-hmm. Yeah, three judge federal panel, and two of South Carolinians, George Bell Timmerman is one of them, along with Judge Waring, and a third judge, uh, Judge Parker, I think. Yes. I can't remember where he was from, but he was he was a Southerner. Either North Carolina or Georgia, he was a Southerner. But anyway, the case is being argued, and as we had mentioned earlier, the first thing that the state's defense was, yep, things are unequal in Clarendon County and everywhere, but we're going to make it. We're going to make gonna it. We're going to clean it up. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to clean it up. And how are they going to clean it up, John? They're going to clean up with a proposed equalization plan, which the state quickly adopts. Now, that costs money. Where'd the money come from? Well, the Burns plan begins to establish a three cents sales tax to help equalize school. But it should be noted, the state legislature was not going to pass that unless that money could also be spent on the improvement of white schools. So this was a specific compromise that Burns had to accept. So you're improving white schools as as well as black schools. Yeah, and this is the first sales tax that South Carolina implements. Has ever implemented. And the fact that there was the compromise that you mentioned for white schools should give you an indication of the condition of all schools in South Carolina, even though the funding white schools versus black schools was tremendously, there was a huge disparity. Rural schools in South Carolina, black or white, were woefully underfunded. Part of the Burns plan was also to consolidate districts. There were so many districts in the state that we had over a thousand school districts. We're literally one school, school districts. The figures, we went from about over 1,000 school districts when Burns got his consolidation plan to about 100 school districts. And, of course, later they would bring that down even. And and part of that was to eliminate dual school districts. So they could point and say, by law, we no longer maintain dual school districts. There are segregated schools within one district. But that was part of the strategy to, again, avoid full desegregation. Okay. And let's get back to the courtroom. Well, from all of the... um the recollections that are now really being studied more more closely, I think, than ever before, because this is a year of commemoration. We go back to the image of um, this federal courthouse being flooded with African Americans, many of whom are from the rural areas. And, and that, the fact that those rural folk coming from Clarendon County, it meant they were taking off from their work, which, I mean, that was costing them money to come there. Absolutely. Carpooling, coming in buses. I mean, I don't know that anybody knows exactly how all those people got there, but they got there in support. Um, And I think it's important because in today's time, uh, rallies don't excite us. We have throngs of people showing up for the Cooper River Run or whatever. But if you would imagine at the time to see downtown Charleston being um, just almost overtaken this day or those days when the when the uh, trial is being heard and, and was quite symbolic. Uh, and we're, we're talking about Broad and Meeting Street. Broad and federal, Meeting, absolutely. You know, the four yeah. corners of law. Yeah. And so um, even if we just visualize what it would have been like to um, see literally hundreds of people, very humble people, showing up to say this matters. This this is an important issue for us. Education matters to the black community. Always did. And this is just a, a visual way of, of, of showing that. And the decision comes down, John, in 1952. Mm-hmm. And what happened? A, a two-to-one decision. Thurgood Marshall and NWCP and the people of Clarendon County did not win the case. But Judge Waring's dissenting Opinion it provides a framework for ultimately the Brown v. Board of Education well, see, that's, decision. Th- that's what I think is so important. Two years before the actual Brown decision by the Supreme Court, and I'm paraphrasing this, but did not Judge Waring at one point in his 
dissent basically say segregation per se is inequality. Absolutely. And segregation must end and must end now. He's very direct in yeah. his yeah. interpretation of the law. And, and I think the quote that um, often comes up is the idea that South Carolina has got to return to the union. <laughs> well, he, he he actually said that in an earlier case. Had he? Uh, <laughs> yes, he, he 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 talked about the sky wasn't going to fall if the Democratic primary was was desegregated. Right, right. And uh-huh. so he resonates that thought again, the yeah. idea that um, this is a changing time, you know, and while we may have put off and we've avoided, we've compromised it to death, we are really at a point in American history where this idea of what real citizenry means is just front and center. And if we're going to continue to deny tax-paying citizens access to the very institutions that they are paying for, you know, we have to just understand that there's something very wrong with that kind of system. Well, and of course, South Carolina at this point had very large military bases, Army, Navy, and Air Force. And per presidential directive of Harry Truman, they were desegregated. So within, there were enclaves within South Carolina. And when those young soldiers or airmen or sailors walked off the base, they walked into a segregated society. Exactly. And also it should be noted, this period defines what citizenship means or is redefining what citizenship means. But it's also defining what resistance means. And if you look at what Judge Waring goes through socially, politically, as a result of this decision, he's a very he's already an unpopular man in Charleston. Well, part of that is not just with – you've got to be fair. It's not just with his political views. It has to do with his personal life. Absolutely. Yes. Very Divor- much. Divorced. divorced. With, <laughs> remarried. Remarried. To a northerner. Yes, <laughs> a, a new a New Yorker, nonetheless, uh, yeah. and a very outspoken New Yorker. So, I mean, th- there there were there were things other than his legal rulings that made him an outcast. Sure. And he he was they were social outcasts from the world in which he grew up. I mean, he was a wearing, yeah, with all that that carried, mm-hmm. and he was considered by the Charleston elite to have turned his back on his on his upbringing. He was a traitor. And his own family, Thomas Waring, editor of the News and Courier, was quick to point out uh, the disservice Judge Waring was was providing to Charleston in the South. Uh, Let me just add, and uh, again, I'm thinking of some points that I I think deserve a little bit of of, of, um, massaging. Judge Waring, as unique as he was, and as much as he needs to be appreciated for having been the the outlier, you know. Um, let's also remember that the Briggs family, the Pearson family, the Delanes suffer greatly that, that, during this time. Melissa, uh, that that was a point that I wanted to to bring up, mm-hmm. and this would have what happened to them, what happened to other civil rights protesters in South Carolina, the Squeeze. Of those 22 petitioners, people lost their jobs. They had loans foreclosed. Could not get credit, were were bodily um, abused. Shots were fired into Delane's house. Um, And his church is ultimately burned down. I I mean, these are not um, just a matter of social ostracism. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are absolute acts of terror Mm -hmm. that um, are meted against people who dare to stand up against the existing system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people did. They also, Judge Waring and his wife, they threw bricks through the front window. Right. Uh, she was harassed as she walked down the street. Mm-hmm. Very proper, and I'll put that in quote, young teenage boys would say all sorts of filthy things about her mm-hmm. that meant to be overheard. So it was, Standing on principle isn't easy, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, I think that's just how we have to look back on it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were people of any color that, that, that 
basically had to decide whether they're going to live their lives based on principle. We certainly had bricks thrown at our home on Ashley Avenue in Charleston. Uh, the Klan burned a cross on our front steps. Now we, we need in, to remind folks that your father was president of the Charleston chapter of the NAACP. Yes, from the mid-50s uh, to the end of the decade, and then served for another five years as state president mm-hmm. of, the, of the NAACP. So our family had the the great humbling experience of of living through a, a real momentous time. Do you have any memories of those as a young child? I mean, the oh yes. If, well, all right, let's let's talk about how did your parents deal with that to protect you, to explain to you what was going on? There are a couple of things that um, my sisters and I love to share with people. Um, one. Please understand that lives were at risk, and while we were very fortunate not to have ever been, you know, have to suffer that, um, we certainly do remember growing up with harassing phone calls and the assaults on our home. We lived in downtown Charleston, uh, west side of Charleston, which was a all-black neighborhood for the most part, but nonetheless right in, in downtown. But my older sister is always credited with having understood the need to just be cool. And when people called in the middle of the night to harass us and to threaten my father's life, we had a game we played. And if people called at three in the morning, she trained my other sister and myself to run to the telephone and always just respond, hello, Brown residence, <laughs> and never let anybody know that they had disturbed our sleep. <laughs> and so we turned, and our father was good at this, we just turned these kinds of assaults into as much of a game as we possibly could. I credit my father for being someone that um, was a realist. I mean, he understood the stakes, but he always just said, you, you cannot give in to that kind of treatment, and you have to find some humor, and you have to just remember why you're doing what you're doing. And sometimes my mother would get worried and say, Joe, you know, this is getting dangerous, and he'd just say, Mady, what are you going to do? And when we got um, calls sometimes threatening to bomb our house, Daddy would say, they don't call you and tell you first, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so he, he had a, a capacity for separating what is intimidation versus what he thought was a real threat. And, um, you know, was he always right? We don't know. But um, I just think we grew up understanding the need to apply as much humor as we could and keep on doing what it was we were determined to do. Okay. All right. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Millicent Brown and Professor John Hale about 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and its background here in South Carolina. Okay. We got through the Briggs v. Elliott trial in Charleston, 1952. It goes to the Supreme Court. And so you want to pick the story up there. Sure. Um, By 1954, when the decisions reached on May 17th, 1954, that segregation was indeed uh, unconstitutional, that didn't change school policy in in South Carolina because we already had in place the resistance to Brown because South Carolina legislators were able to anticipate this decision. So one, as we mentioned before, the Burns plan and raising money to equalize schools. South Carolina was going to depend on a defense of equalizing schools to avoid desegregation, because that was a pattern the Supreme Court began to establish. But also in 1952, the legislature passes a referendum that is going to remove the constitutional provision to require the state to maintain public schools, which means uh, it's going to open state support for a private school system. In other words, once the Brown decision is reached, South Carolina is not going to desegregate its schools. The resistance was already established before the Brown decision, and it's not until 1963 where only 11 students, uh, Professor Brown and 10 other students, desegregate schools. Well, what is interesting in the, the move for the referendum, 
in the white community, it was the state's white women's clubs who opposed, obviously unsuccessfully, this referendum to take mandatory public education out of the Constitution. And there was also a a pamphlet published after the Brown decision called South Carolinians Speak, which was multiracial but primarily white clergy and they were usually involved lay men and lay women and they were, they were they were church persons who basically said you know now the decision has been made this is what we what we need to do it was for its day it was probably radical you you read the pamphlet now and it seems relatively tame but one of the women who wrote an essay in there her opinion had her home bombed mm-hmm. clergy were asked to leave there was harsh reaction. And the state's media, it wasn't just the news and courier, the state newspaper, the Greenville News, they either ignored the issue or they were hardline segregationist. That's right. And if if you go back and try to, to find what was going on, there was almost a policy, it seems like, of not covering events. Am I? Yeah. A- absolutely. No. Yeah. The state of South Carolina did not report on the major events of the civil rights movement. And if you look at the freedom rides that came through South Carolina um, in, in, Rock in Rock Hill, they were assaulted before the Anniston, Alabama, which the country defines as the most violent moment of the freedom rides. But it was just, uh, I mean, it's threatening and, and violent in Rock Hill, South Carolina. But the press ignored that, and it, it does not work itself into the national consciousness like Anniston does. My father um, often reminded us that he had to read the Atlanta Constitution and sometimes the Charlotte Observer to find out what was going on in South Carolina or in Charleston. Mm -hmm. You know, it it was a blackout and and it was purposeful, you Mm -hmm. know. But but now there were black newspapers. Yes. The the Lighthouse and Informer. Yes, John McRae. Which sadly we don't know that much about now because their files disappeared during a change of ownership. You knew that, didn't you? I didn't realize. I know that there's some copies available. There, there are some copies available. But not the full file. But not, not the no. full. When McRae and others had a disagreement and he left, the morgue files, as it were, of the newspaper disappeared as well. We had the Inquirer in, in Charleston yeah. with documents and movement. But I will say that, in speaking of the media not covering events, just months prior to the first the, to the desegregation of Charleston County School District, you have during you know the, the Charleston summer of, of 1963 probably the high point of nonviolent direct action protests at least in Charleston. Um, you you have a protest organized by young people, the NWCP Youth Council at the News and Courier building because of that very fact that they were not covering the local movement or what was happening. Well, and I was arrested for the first time. During that demonstration. You were 15, right? I was just shy of 15. I hadn't quite had – I had a summer birthday, so I wasn't quite 15 when that happened. And And I was released because I was a minor. I was arrested, I'm very proud to say, along with uh, the child of Reverend Ida Quincy Newman. (laughs) We were arrested together. And with uh, former Senator uh, Herbert Fielding's son. So <laughs> that was an interesting night that we were all minors and uh, were arrested at the same protest. Well, in Charleston, they talk about that summer of 63, the Charleston movement. But 1963, across South Carolina, there was a push to certainly, in terms of public accommodations, to begin desegregation. And it was very much an organized effort, you know, mostly through the NAACP with some core activism upstate. But the idea is that this was a a unified attack on all of the public accommodations problems in the state. And speaking of Ida Quincy Newman, this may be a point to, to bring up. At the time, he was NAACP Youth Council president. And just to illustrate that we were that the movement was calling upon young people. I mean, Professor Brown, you were, you were not even 15 yet during the summer, how young uh, protesters were being arrested, um, joining the front lines of the civil rights movement. Sitting that, in at lunch counters, picketing a lot mm-hmm. of times, going to those beaches that were off limits. Uh, I happen to now live very near Folly Beach, and even in today, when I go to Folly Beach, I have these memories of how dangerous that was because we were so much not wanted out there. And so uh, one of the big rifts 
among the older NAACP leaders and the youth leaders mm-hmm. was um, people like my father and Reverend Newman who and Reverend B.J. Glover, another local who, leader who would say, you know, do not go into harm's way. And the young people would say, uh-uh, you know, we're not going to listen. And so we often didn't listen to the elders and would go to Folly Beach or to some park or to some tennis court knowing that we would probably be rebuked. But um, there there was just this riff because young people were just becoming more and more impatient and taking up with the national energy that was emerging. And, and we just said, no, we're not going to listen. <laughs> and we didn't. <laughs> Interestingly, one of the first desegregated public parks, if you will, in Charleston was the golf course. Yes. Yes. Which um, your father was instrumental in organizing. Yeah, yeah. I talk about my father with his sense of humor because he actually, in his capacity as um, NAACP leader, always believed you don't ever ask other people to do things that you are not willing to do yourself. So my father is one of the, the plaintiffs, when it was the golf course, the municipal golf course with Don Jack White, whether it was the the beach case with Etta Clark, Daddy couldn't play golf and Daddy couldn't swim, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But that didn't matter, <laughs> you know. It was a principle again. Well, there were folks who were shocked that Charleston's Mayor Gilliard did order the municipal course open. Right. He just went ahead and did it. There was a lawsuit. Yes, there was a case pending. For pending. Sure. There was yeah. a case pending. Yeah. But he just he made the decision in 1963 to go ahead and and open it. And I remember very distinctly, um, uh, Judge, um, who at the time uh, Matthew Perry was the uh, chief legal uh, representative for the state NAACP, uh, coming to our home and meeting with those plaintiffs in the municipal golf course case, and. Um, recognizing that people had not been paying attention, but if they looked on their tax bill, they discovered that there was a certain amount of millage set aside for the maintenance of the municipal golf course. And once it was pointed out that this was a public domain, it was funded by the public, that is when um, one of the major litigants stepped forward and said, it's one thing not to be able to play golf without driving to North Carolina. But when I looked at my tax bill and saw that I was paying to be kept off that golf course, he was incensed. And that interested him in becoming one of the first plaintiffs. Let's bring things up to the present. You're both on college faculties. Soon to retire, however, (laughs) but um, very much have been a part of the Charleston and South Carolina community, even in my professional life. Well, how, looking at the 60th anniversary, and you have uh, both of you involved with a series of programs for young people, how familiar are they with the events of 60 years ago? Do they have any idea, for example, Millicent, what you went through as a young person or what your dad went through? Many, many students, and I certainly mean all students, um, do not. I think that um, most historians will tell you that we have to be very careful that um, young people are not being taught that there was... um, Dr. King, and then there was the Civil Rights Act, and or there was Brown bevored, and then things changed, you know. And so we have to kind of slow it up and remind people of some of the things we've been discussing today, um, that these are changes that were hard fought, and the resistance remained. And so, no, my, my answer would be um, many students do not realize, and they're fascinated when, especially those of us who are in that first group of 11, uh, get a chance to tell our stories. I have been encouraged as a result of my experiences to create a program called Somebody Had to Do It. And uh, this is an ongoing research project uh, that is soon to be based out of the Avery Research Center at the College of Charleston, where we're collecting the stories 
not only in South Carolina, but around the nation. We want to make sure we document what were those experiences like for students who were the first to desegregate, because they were not the same. I feel that going to Rivers, while I met challenges, there were certainly um, good, good points, and there were wonderful young people that I met, and I have lifelong relationships with some of those students. Some of the rural communities had very different experiences. And so I think as good social scientists, Dr. Hale and I both agree, we need that documentation because we don't want to assume that what I went through in the 10th grade is what Jackie Ford went through at the same school, but she was an 8th grader. What are the pressures there? What about Ovita Glover and Cassandra Alexander, Eddie Alexander, Gerald Alexander? These are original plaintiffs. They were in third grade. You know, what's that experience like? What about the ones who went to James Simmons? You know, we we are saying we cannot broad brush this this experience because I'm curious about things like, how did the girls fare differently from the boys? These are just social science questions that I hope that uh, ultimately we'll have data available so others will continue to ask these questions. Well, this is also the 50th anniversary of desegregation at the University of South Carolina, and I have heard it said that Miss Monteith's experience was different from that of Robert Anderson and James Solomon. Absolutely. So, uh, in fact, all she being an undergraduate, they were in the grad school. For and, one thing. and Anderson was an undergrad living on campus, whereas Solomon commuted. So they were actually three very different experiences. Yeah. And, and we just think that it's time now, if we're going to mature with this civil rights story, to not just commemorate, but to really ask some more penetrating questions, even to the point of something that's very near and dear to my heart, and I know to Dr. Hale as well. What about today? What about the impact of desegregation? Here I am, one of thousands of children around the country who were breaking down barriers, and there's no backing off that segregation had to be removed. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we didn't anticipate the privatization of schools. We didn't anticipate white flight. We didn't anticipate that many black principals would be removed. And when schools merged or integrated, many of those black leaders would be demoted. And you get black principals being put in charge of discipline or in charge of the lunchroom. <laughs> and, and, you know, and what is the ongoing impact of what we did when we didn't do desegregation quite with the spirit in which it was legally intended? And those are ramifications that we are facing in 2014. John, for somebody who moved into the state, and you're now teaching undergraduates, and there's a fairly national student body at the College of Charleston now. It, it's not like it was when Millicent went there when they were mostly Charleston mm -hmm. uh, young men and young women. Right. Over half the incoming classes are um, coming from out of state. You teach courses dealing with this. What do they know when they come to your class? Do they have any kind of knowledge, any kind of background about what what's going on? No, l largely unaware of the role of South Carolina in, in, in the civil rights movement, in the national civil rights movement, specifically also the history of the Brown v. Board of Education decision, largely unaware of the contributions of the state. But I will also say that there's a shift in interpretation that has been occurring for a number of years, but that students aren't aware of. And that's, uh, Professor Brown, you mentioned the idea of looking at national leaders, Dr. King, but also, you know, federal judges, ladies wearing Earl Warren, for instance, or President Lyndon B. Johnson and the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that there's a much more dynamic interplay between a national federal and the local context. So the, the political acumen of someone like LBJ or, or Judge Waring was significantly shaped by the grassroots local level. And that is something that I think students 
are unaware of, but when, once they learn, they, they see the movements in a different way. And it also, in some ways, creates a sense of agency to see that it's local, everyday, ordinary people who have this na- national impact. Well, and I think particularly when you're teaching young people to realize that by 1963, in South Carolina, it was true pretty much throughout the South, but particularly in South Carolina, the involvement of young people and not just college students. Mm -hmm. Congressman Clyburn was a college student, and he talks about going to jail. But the involvement of, of young people in something that was bigger than themselves, I mean, that's... That's well, that, quite a story. And that's this kind of um, merging that um, for people who are fearful that of what it is that activist scholars are doing in the classroom, what we're saying is we have to constantly help to teach citizenship. Mm-hmm. And citizenship is dependent upon engagement. Mm-hmm. And so um, the issues of today, while certainly different from the 60s in some ways, but they are just as imperative that young people have to be a part of shaping the environment, the institutions that they're a part of. They have to be critical. And, but they have to come up to step up to the plate and be involved, certainly. And something else students are bringing to, to the classroom is not only largely being unaware of what the local movement, how that contributed to the national development of the civil rights movement, but also if, if you talk about something like the Brown v. Board of Education decision, that students interpret this as one of the most significant court cases in United States history, but that it was successful in desegregating schools. Sixty years from Brownout, we can begin to ask the question, did we truly realize the ideals that are embedded within the Brown decision. And in South Carolina, I think it's important to teach a court case, Abbeville v. South Carolina, which originates in 1996-97 and is finally decided in uh, 2006 that we're dealing with a lot of the same issues. Yes, times have changed and there's been great progress uh, within the public school system, but at the same time, if you look at the evidence presented in the Abbeville case, they're arguing that schools are still segregated, underfunded, the quality of teaching is not up to par to meet the, the needs of students, uh, the curriculum and textbooks used in schools are obviously, again, not meeting a need for the quality of education of students. So these issues are still with us today, and it's important for students to realize, to, to critically interpret and commemorate the Brown decision. So that is also the task of educators today. John, since I was the lead witness in the case of (laughs) uh, it's not just a question of race. It's a question of rural versus urban. And that has been a problem in South Carolina ever since there was a public school system. The rural schools in South Carolina, whether they're serving white children or African-American children, have not been properly funded. I mean, that's that's a reality. I once, in fact, I was asked on the stand about what had I done. I had read every state of the state address from 1900 forward. I had read every governor's inaugural address. and um, Admirable. Every, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do that to my most <laughs> recalcitrant graduate student. But every one of them said, we have to improve education. And it's surprising, particularly until after World War II, they talk about the problem of rural schools. In fact, our State Department of Education had rural schools, black schools, white schools. As three separate as entities. Three separate added. entities, yeah. yeah. But I also see it as an issue as a state-national conflict because um, in the Rodriguez decision, the Supreme Court obviously makes it very clear that education is not a constitutional right that is left to the state. So this is why each... South Carolina is not unique with the Abbeville decision. Every state is dealing with issues of educational funding. And I I just want to add that um, I think it's really very important as we do these commemorations and look back on the importance of Brown and, 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 and the other cases, that we're not afraid to shift the emphasis. I came up at a time when we really believed that if we got what white students had, we would achieve quality and equity. We now know, because of what you just said, that the, the issues are, are deeper than that. They include race, for sure, but they are not exclusively racial. And so the call, the demand that, that is being made is 
keep the churning, keep the, the, the momentum going. We thought we had the answer, but we didn't, okay? So let's just keep looking. It's now about how do we achieve quality education for all children? And I, I consider that to be a rollout of the civil rights movement of the 60s is maturing and becoming more um, nuanced. And now we understand and we're able to stand together and say we owe it to all children. Okay. I'm getting the sign from Alfred that we are about to – we need to wind up. And so, John, any last words? Yeah, just to understand the trajectory of the civil rights movement that some of um, – if you look at education as a as a lens to understand civil rights movement, that you see it's still an unfinished agenda, that there are still struggles occurring in the state and across the country. And to be aware that, again, not just commemoration, but, but to critically interpret and really dig deeper into what, are, what issues are at stake today. Okay. Millis? I think that we have to take on the issue of quality because if we can look past race, we have to then say, our children being well served. We do have some real problems where African American children are being taught very often by well-meaning perhaps, but still by people who are not from their community and don't perhaps trust them and really have the faith in their abilities. And so we haven't dodged that bullet yet. How do we make sure we support the ability and the progress of, of students whatever their background, and are prepared to to challenge ourselves to look out for the well-being of all students. Professor Millicent Brown from Claflin, Professor John Hale from the College of Charleston, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. A look back, a look at the present, and where we have come in 60 years in South Carolina. The story of Brown versus the Board of Education didn't really just start in 1954. It started much earlier in South Carolina, in Clarendon County, in the case of Briggs versus Elliott. And the issues today in terms of education have gone beyond the question of race, but include all children. What is the quality of education that is being offered to the children of South Carolina? It's a question that, as we look to the future, we're going to have to have an answer. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's Journal are their own and are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.